News Power Hour. Monday, the 18th of October, a warm welcome to you. My name's Alec Hogg. I'm with Biz News, and here is your Power Hour. Well, we're going to be giving you lots of uh, interesting things to listen to in the next hour, including something that for me was uh, really the most, one of the most fascinating interviews I've done in a long, long time. Uh, in fact, it's not long since, or rather, it's a long time since I've been nervous going into an interview. But I was a bit starstruck, I suppose, to, on, to be honest. Uh, Martin Clunes is an actor. He's well known as the uh, lead of a series called Doc Martin, which is shot in Cornwall in England. Uh, it, uh, he is also the lead in a brand new series that we can now get in South Africa, uh, which is through something called BritBox. I was one of their first subscribers, I'm pretty sure. And uh, it was a fascinating 20 minutes or so that we had a conversation uh, around the uh, series that he's being busy with called Manhunt, plus the world of an actor, how acting is, uh, what a a top-line actor like Martin Clunes has been going through during COVID-19, and uh, I think you're going to find it fascinating. That's coming up just after we hear from our colleagues in London from the Financial Times. And there, it, it's an unusual um, story today from them in that they are addressing a question of is economic growth linked to population growth? So in addition to the usual uh, insights that we get from the FT on the latest news headlines, they also address that issue and uh, quite a, an interesting answer, especially for a country that has had population growth on average exceeding economic growth for something like 10 years, a big, big uh, warning to South Africa that we got to turn that story around. And then a little later in the program, we'll hear from David Shapiro, who spoke with Mark, uh, with Justin Rowe Roberts. Justin, have you guys uh, covered some interesting ground today? Always great to talk to David on a Monday. Alec, yes, we cover an uh, interesting a variety of topics, both what's topical uh, in the local markets and abroad. And that's uh, Justin Rowe Roberts who will be bringing us up to date with the markets in just a little while. Uh, then we will be hearing more about Power Pulse. Now, this is a, an interesting uh, partnership that we have with one of our supporters, Standard Bank, in that they have put together something online which brings those who want to invest in uh, solar, primarily solar, but any renewable energy operations – and bring those into their businesses and with those who actually do the installations. So Santa Bank's gone through the whole story of trying to uh, sort the wheat from the chaff and has come to the conclusion uh, that you really do have some high-quality operations in South Africa that they're quite ha happy to finance. So it's not just for Standard Bank clients. It really is a... Uh, an interesting series that we've been doing with them. That's coming up later in the program as well. So plenty for you uh, in the next hour of power. Before we get to any of that, though, let's find out what went on uh, with the markets. Bride Rob believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Our colleague Nadia Swat is having a well-deserved well break, break this week. This so week. another so of our colleagues, Jared, Jared Neves, is stepping in today, today to give us the update on the, well, update on the news. Jared? South Africa's finance minister urged investors not to be deterred by what he termed isolated incidents of criminality and assured them that improving safety and security is one of government's top priorities. I would argue that people must invest in South Africa, Enoch Gadangwana said in an online panel discussion. We cannot let an isolated incident, which is not a feature of our society, be a reason for lack of investment. The latest police statistics show that there were 5,760 murders in South Africa in the three months through June, an average of 62 a day. ESCOM has started court proceedings to review the regulator's rejection of a price plan into 2025 that outlines how much the utility can charge electricity consumers. 
the National Energy Regulator of South Africa on September 30th, called for a pricing methodology review and discarded the so-called MYPD5 revenue application of ESCOM, which is unprofitable and struggles under about 400 billion rands of debt. This is impossible both from a legal process and timing point of view, the utility had said. And the spectacle of two South African cabinet ministers being held hostage by military veterans demanding an audience with the president has embarrassed the government and highlighted security concerns ahead of next month's municipal elections. Defence Minister Tandi Modise, herself a former combatant in the fight against white minority rule, her deputy Tabang Makwetla and Minister in the Presidency Mondli Gungubele were prevented from leaving a hotel near the capital, Pretoria, on Thursday after talks with the veterans collapsed. The standoff lasted less than an hour before special forces stormed the venue, firing tear gas and arresting 56 people who now face kidnapping charges. No one was hurt. We were there against our will, but it was not a violent situation, Gungubele later told reporters. What a strange strange story, isn't it? That uh, uh, hostage story with the military veterans. veterans. My goodness. goodness. Uh, It's Uh, interesting, the the murder stats stats that you brought out there, Jared. 62 per day. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It's terrifying. I mean, that's that's a lot of people just in one day. And the finance minister minister saying, saying, uh, presumably, he was referring to the July riots and saying that that was an isolated incident. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen again. But I suppose the problem here is that you get so many of these incidents that accumulate. And as they accumulate, they create a picture, on top of which 62 murders a day certainly don't send the right message. Okay, well, let's just uh, find out now what's going on on the markets. Here's Justin Rowe-Roberts. The JSUL share index was lower at 66,900. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 75 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 26 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 12 cents to the euro. Gold was flat at $1,765 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back 27,500 rand. Brent crude is trading at $85.70 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency is trading at a shade below the 900,000 rand level. In the financial news, emerging energy group Renogen has inked a 365 million rand forward sales agreement that forms part of a broader plan to allow investors to trade in the rare gas helium, intending to help bring price transparency to what is now an opaque market. Renogen's deal with Argon Helium, a company formed in March for the transaction, will see helium traded like a cryptocurrency using blockchain technology to create tokens that can be exchanged directly for the gas. Helium, unlike many many other commodities, does not at present have a spot market where assets are traded for immediate delivery. Instead, producers rely on contracts. It's an interesting story, Justin, on the on Renogen that uh, that is a South African operation and uh, one that is is well liked by South African investors. Very interesting company, Alec. It is a junior miner, so they're currently not making money, but the, the whole thesis behind helium does make sense. I'm chatting to Stefano Marani, the CEO of Renogen, at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, so look forward to finding out about, a bit more about this deal and a bit more about their progress from a mining perspective too. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be having more updates of that in the program tomorrow night. What about the rest of the markets? What other information do you have for us today? Chinese data came through, uh, their third quarter data, missed expectations. That's more ominous news coming out of China. David Shapiro does go through it in a bit more detail, but there's just ominous sign after ominous sign. And it seems, it's, seems like things that are coming to a grinding halt for China, which is not good for South Africa. We know that because of NASPA's process, not only because of NASPA's process, a lot of the commodity counters demand is dependent on the Chinese economy, which seems to be stalling at a rate of knots. Now, that's something that that penny has not dropped for South Africans yet, in that the South African rand depends on what we get primarily for the commodity prices in the country. There's lots of other determinants, but the close correlation between the rand and commodity prices uh, cannot be denied. And the greatest demand for South African commodities comes from China, not least because they cut off Australia because of political issues there as well. So if China gets a, if China gets a cold nowadays, then we get pneumonia. In the old days, it used to be if, uh, if America 
uh, sniffles. The rest of us at least sneeze and uh, then get very sick. But it seems for South Africa, it's, it's very much a Chinese situation. So those GDP figures that came out, which are a lot lower than were anticipated, must be giving uh, people like Shapiro uh, cause for pause. Exactly. So I don't, even, I don't even think that it's only the stock market that's affected. As you're saying, there's this whole ecosystem with South Africa and China and our newfound dependence on them. So as soon as that economy starts to stall, when they catch a cold, we'll get the flu too. So it'll be interesting to see how things go from here. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, October 18th, and this is your FT News Briefing. High energy prices are looming over the airline industry's recovery. And in today's show, we're doing something a little different and a little fun. We've got a question from one of our listeners. Is economic growth linked to population growth? And if so, why? So we found just the right FT correspondent to answer it. Adam, you've touched upon one of the main economic dilemmas of our time. So this is a million dollar question. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Higher energy costs have rippled through global markets, and they're hitting airlines, too. The FT's acting transport correspondent, Philip Georgiadis, says higher fuel costs could trip up airlines as they recover from the pandemic. Airlines haven't really had any revenue. They've not been able to control that. They've had very few passengers, travel restrictions, and so on. So they've really had a laser focus on costs and tried to get them down as much as possible. Unfortunately, laying off a lot of staff, restructuring their businesses, looking at their fleets. But these fuel prices are costs that they really can't control. So can airlines absorb the cost? How, how much will this hurt? I think invest, if you're an investor in an airline, you're pretty sanguine. You've just had a pretty rough time and you have quite a long time horizon. So I don't think they're too worried about this. But obviously for airlines and when thinking on a quarter by quarter profitability basis, it is a little bit more of a worry for them. And actually Delta Airlines, the big US carrier last week, warned that it would probably slip back to a loss in the final quarter of the year because of the rise in fuel prices. So that gives you an idea. It's not existential for airlines, but coming out of the pandemic, this is really the last thing that they need. And what's actually made it worse is that normally many airlines would hedge the fuel price. So they will lock in a price for a future expected fuel requirement for, say, the next year or or so in order to try to guard against spikes and volatility in the oil market. But almost all major airlines actually gave up on that following the pandemic because they really blew up when the oil price went into meltdown last year. The oil price tumbled, but they had already paid for a large amount of oil at a higher price that they then couldn't even use because no one was flying. And after that, many CEOs and CFOs swore off hedging. So now they've been left pretty naked and exposed to this rise in oil prices. Given what's going on, are airlines thinking about climate change at all and making efforts to find greener solutions? Are there even greener solutions out there, Philip? I think this is just about the biggest question that the airline industry is facing. There are electric planes out there, but it's a very new technology and the battery technology doesn't yet exist to power a large plane full of people a large distance. What there are at the moment, and they are in existence and some planes are flying on them, are things called sustainable aviation fuels, which is basically a biofuel, which is much better over its life cycle for the environment. And there's a whole industry and a whole movement at the moment trying to get those costs down. The only problem is they are even more expensive than jet fuel, even after the price rises. Sometimes our wonderful listeners reach out to us either on Twitter or email or LinkedIn. And when they do, they often have these just fantastic questions. Here's one of our question askers. My name is Adham Alaka. I'm 37 years old. I work as an HR manager and I live in London. Adam reached out to us with this great question about population growth. Is economic growth linked to population growth? And if so, why? Unfortunately, I don't know the answer to this question. Fortunately, I have basically the entire FT staff available to me who will let me ask these kind of questions on Adam's behalf. In this case, Federica Coco, a statistical journalist for the FT, has been working on this 
exact topic, population growth. And she's here with me now. Hey, Federica. Hi, Mark. First, first off, this is such a good question, right? Yeah, actually, Adam, you've touched upon one of the main economic dilemmas of our time. So this is a million dollar question. But it's not really an easy one to answer, is it, Frederica? Well, it's kind of straightforward, actually. If we were to do a 30-second podcast, then the answer would be yes, uh, population growth is linked to economic growth. Now, whether it's a good thing or not, that's another matter. It certainly does bring up some pretty uh, huge problems for our economy if, if population starts to decline, which is what it's expected to happen. Right. And, and, and to that point, Adam brings up these really nuanced points, right? I'm going to play the first one now. I've been thinking since a couple of years about overpopulation and its direct negative impact on the environment. Valid point, right, Federica? Yeah, of course. So fewer people are good for the environment. There's no doubt about it. And also, you could argue that perhaps as a society, we're a bit too consumer obsessed and we should sort of curb our obsession with growth. Right. And and this is a major point coming out of the pandemic. Environment is a big topic in a lot of governments. Adam has another point, though, that I want to play that kind of adds another layer to all this. I have read in a recent FT article about the long term negative impact of China's one child policy on the Chinese economy and the fear of economic decline due to population drag. You know, that's a whole different thing. Fewer people is better for the environment, but it could slow economic growth. Well, so we've known for a while, in fact, in some countries in the in the Western world, like Sweden, for example, the decline in the birth rate started at the end of the 1800s. So this has been happening for a while in Europe, in countries like South Korea, you know, even in the US. It's kind of declining everywhere. But the important thing is that now it's going below 2.1 births per couple. What this means is that that couple are not going to be able to replace themselves when they die if they don't have more than two children. But the Western countries have been able to correct for this by importing a lot of migrants. And so in the US, for example, that's happened for a while. What's interesting now is that a lot of developing countries, including China, they're also seeing the birth rate go below 2.1. Right. And we've long talked about this problem in places like Japan, right, where uh, the aging population is dying out and, and there's not that replacement. And Japan is, is, as you said, really kind of open, started opening its doors for the first time to people outside of their country to try and get that replacement rate up. Yeah, but it's possibly not enough because, as I said, other countries are also experiencing this decline in births. And coupled with that, as you, as you mentioned with, with Japan, this is a huge problem. People are living for longer. So, for example, in the 1960s, there were six people of working age. So that's aged 16 to 64 for every retired person. And so I think about my grandmother. She had six children. And now that she's in her 90s, they all take turns looking after her. But my parents, for example, only had two children. And that ratio globally now is three working age people for one retired person. So this raises questions at a societal level of who takes care for the elderly. And that's leaving aside the economic issues. That's that's a huge problem, too. But it doesn't end there, right? Because we have an economic issue to deal with, which can be summarized in, you know, working age people. They're the ones that pay taxes. So who's going to pay taxes if a greater share of the population is actually retired? And when you get older, when you and I get older, who's going to pay for our health care and our pension? So bottom line, uh, if you have one message for Adam to take away from this conversation, what is it? One is that people of working age, uh, they also tend to consume and buy. And so if we have fewer young people, we're also going to have fewer consumers. And so that's another implication for the economy. Another thing that um, there's, there was a recent study on, you know, young people, 16 to 64, let's say, because they're involved in production and in work, they also create a sort of marketplace of ideas. And that creates growth. You know, the, the steady growth that we've had in the past 200 years has been largely thanks to technological progress. And so if we have a smaller share of the population that is engaged in that, then growth is also going to suffer. 
Um, now, demographers are studying this issue very deeply because, as I said, it poses such great dilemmas for society. One thing that they seem to agree on is that population decline is inevitable because practically women are just choosing to have fewer children. It's inevitable. So what we need to do as a society is to sort of reorganize ourselves so that it's not a steep drop and we, we kind of have a soft landing and we learn to live with a smaller population. Federica Coco is a statistical journalist for the FT. Thank you so much for your time, Federica. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. When we return to South Africa 2019, after three years in the UK, the one thing I missed a lot was the British television. But we have had the launch of BritBox here in South Africa on the 6th of August. And one of the featured uh, programs that is now starting to be well picked up is called Manhunt 2. It's all about a detective chief inspector, Colin Sutton. And he's played by Martin Clunes, who's one of the best-known British actors. We'll get into other parts of his career in a moment. But Martin, reading the British media, many of them are saying that it's your best work yet. How do you feel about that suggestion? I think they need to revisit some of my earlier work, which was also very good. Um, but I'll, I'll take anything, you know. Um, <laughs> It is a, a part. Uh, it is a part that I've, I've I've loved playing, and I sort of from the first one I liked being Colin. And uh, I have to say, it's really helpful to me having a real person or something. You know, you always look for something to act rather than just reciting your lines. And to have Colin in my mind and being Colin, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed being that that decent man. And it sort of felt quite easy the second time around just to get in, in that groove. How much time do you spend researching, i.e. how much time would you spend with Colin Sutton before uh, Series 1 and now Series 2? Just hung out with him, went out to the first time I met him, we went out to dinner and I'd, I think I upset Mark, the director, by saying, do you mind, because I'd never met Mark at that dinner, I just wanted to get a good look at Colin and sort of drink him in, if you know what I mean. And um, that, that was really helpful. And also he's, he's terrific company and a great raconteur. Um, but then the, the next sort of really helpful thing was learning how to operate within a, a rank system to see how uh, one officer relates to another officer. And if that officer says something to this officer, how it reverberates within within the rank. Um, and I know the other actors who played the, you know, the, the other members of the police force really appreciated having Colin. And of course, they're, they're playing real people, too. So a lot of them were calling their their real subjects. And also Colin was very helpful about how how he viewed them. Now, from a South African perspective, we don't really understand the English accents that well. But it appears as though there's a very distinctive accent that uh, DCI Sutton has. I'd say Colin spoke in what, what's in snobby terms referred to as an estuary accent, which is sort of around the Thames sort of area or maybe South London. And I, I grew up in South London and I went to school in South London. I actually went to school in the area where the Night Stalker was operating in um, in Shirley. So I suppose, yes, it's funny, you're not the first person to have said I was using an accent that I didn't sort of think I was, if you know what I mean. I, th I think some of the Americans thought I was using a Cockney accent, but they're probably basing that on Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. So. <laughs> Are we then to look forward to a series here? We, we've had series one. The second series is it, surely he, there would be other great cases that he would have worked on. It's always funny to me when, when people refer to it as series one and series two, like it is a kind of ongoing uh, returning drama because uh, to my mind, I think some of the cases, and <laughs> maybe I'm too much Colin on this, but, um, I, I, you know, the, like the first was a series about that case, and this was a series about the next case. So I, they, they don't seem like a continuation, although obviously it's, it's the same guy. Colin's looking at um, other cases. Of course, he worked on other cases in a, in a very long and distinguished career. But 
and this sounds really bad, they don't all lend themselves to dramatization. Um, that sounds really bad when you're talking about crimes like these, but uh, that's the truth. What does he think of the Night Stalker series now that he's presumably seen it? Oh, he's really pleased, really pleased. I mean, he's been involved right from the start. You know, it's all based on his memoir and uh, uh, Ed Whitmore, the writer, and he have a, you know, a, a good working relationship. You know, he turns up on set quite a lot, comes to have a look, and he's always tickled by the efforts of the art department, who are brilliant, um, uh, in what they've recreated, uh, you know, in terms of how a, a police station looks. You know, we're all very familiar with fictitious police stations, if you like, the, where the look is everything rather than it looking like what it really looked like. But, but you know, the, we've always um, been at pains with these programs to keep them as, as, as kind of accurate as we can. And what did you learn from everything that you went through here? I learned to appreciate the police force um, who are coming under an awful uh, uh, amount of scrutiny at the moment. Mark Evans, the director and I, on the first one, we hung out with Hampshire Serious Crime Squad uh, just to see, again, with the rank thing, how the senior investigating officer operates with his teammates. And just the amount of work that goes into stopping people doing terrible things to each other, you know, it's, it's, it's so impressive. They're, they do so much and it's so thankless. <laughs> and I think they, they seem to get held up and take knocks. And there's been some terrible stuff. You know, there's, there's always going to be terrible people uh, in all industries. Just going behind the scenes, it's interesting to notice that you work closely with your wife of nearly a quarter century. Next year is 25 years, yes. Yes. Colin Sutton and his wife spoke a lot at home. And in fact, she helped him uh, to nail down uh, the criminal. Your wife is involved in your production, certainly in this production and with Doc Martin earlier. Do you take work home? Not really. Um, not really, because we are, we're a partnership in, you know, in it. In other senses as well, we have a daughter. We, you know, that, that's part of our, and we have the, we own the company, and so there's, uh, that's a, a a form of partnership. And we, I think we're pretty good at not talking about the work things outside of of, of work hours, especially lately when you know Philippa has been working so much on Zoom calls. So I think she gets a bit brain fried. So the last thing she needs to hear is me and my silly question. How does that partnership work for the many people who do work uh, as with spouses? It works really well because neither of us do the same job. Um, so there's no, you know, vying or competition there. I, I'm very lucky. I bimble through life and um, things have come along. I've, I've, I've not actually ever been that ambitious beyond just wanting to stay busy and keep this as my job. The thing that I do that pays for everything. Um, but Philippa keeps putting these things in my way that challenge me as a professional, you know, as a, as an actor that I wouldn't necessarily do myself. I mean, for years, you know, if you're if you have any success on TV, someone will ask you to play some kind of detective. If, if you you know you get audiences coming back to your stuff, and I'm just not interested in those those TV detective things. But this was different because it seemed to me more it was a study of a man and a job as much as anything else, which is why I'm sort of slightly puzzled by the idea of the, what, what's the next series going to be like. Because there may well not be one, you know, because we just sort of visited these these two episodes in, in Colin's life. But um, I knew she was developing this with Ed because we did a thing. I don't know if you've got that in South Africa called Arthur and George, which was a Julian Barnes book about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, which we made with the same writer, Ed. Uh, and I knew that she and Ed were, were doing something about this interesting policeman, but I'd sort of left them to it. And then I said, oh, can I have a look? And the more she told me about the man, the more I sort of got interested. And I said, oh, can I play that? And she said, yes. <laughs> you you have mentioned a couple of times of, of acting, and I was interested to see that it runs in the family, your late father and your grandfather being actors as well. Were you kind of made to be an actor? I guess so. I, I mean, my dad died when I was eight, so I wasn't, you know, my career path wasn't fully formed in my head. But uh, I think when I was little and people said, and what are you going to be when you grow up? I just kind of said actor because there was a vacancy for that role in our family, if you like. But um, uh, and then I, uh, you know, again, I kind of wandered in. I was very young 
when I went to drama school, I was 16. Um, I, I wasn't a great student at school and I wasn't that engaged with any of that, but I went to drama school where I was a, a bit younger than most of the people there and quite annoying. And then I was out in the, as a professional actor at the age of 18, not really thinking about it much. <laughs> and, and comedy, men behaving badly is, is, it's comedy, whereas Doc Martin is not exactly comedy. And now you, you're even further away from the genre. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I never, uh, uh, it wasn't a conscious effort to work in comedy. I, I was just funny looking, I think. That's why I, I ended up there. I did a lot before Men Behaving Badly. I'd done two other sitcoms, sort of more domestic ones, um, and bits of sketch stuff and everything. But always alongside, you know, little roles in TV dramas, or I worked in the theatre a fair bit. So I always thought there was there was more of a balance. But obviously, Men Behaving Badly was really successful over here, and that's where people learnt what my name is. Born in Wimbledon, which is maybe the centre of South African expats in the UK, along the southwest line, if you don't hear Afrikaans being spoken, well, then you're on the wrong train. Actually, that's true. There was um, I, I, we lived in Putney for a while, and that's that's nearby. And there was a big there was a big South African um, deli. Yeah, we could get some gazelle for the bride. Aha, uh-huh. and, and there are two, there, I think there are two South African shops at the Wimbledon station now. But have you been here? Have you been to this part of the world? I have, yes, yeah, yeah, a few times. I directed a car commercial in Cape Town, and I went to a game reserve up near Port Elizabeth. A, a guy called Adrian Gardner, so he, he bought all these uh, ranches. I used to be involved with a wildlife charity, and they, do you remember that poor girl who was murdered, Julie Ward? terrible thing but they opened this julie ward center for big cats that had been rescued and weren't able to support themselves in the wild but they were in camps within the wild if you know what i mean they were in the right environment now adrian is a is a legendary figure here in south africa brought back the the whole wildlife to the eastern cape but but it was interesting to me as well to see that you farm you farm in dorset uh, and that most of your de- documentaries, or it appears so anyway, are related to animals. So you've got a connection there. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like animals. I, like, I share my life. You know, we've got four dogs, two cats. How many horses have we got at home? We've got a load of horses. Um, I just, I've got a pair of Clydesdales. That with, the weather's just turned here. It's sort of wet and windy. And um, I just led him in from the field. He was sort of bouncing around quite sideways on them. What do you farm? Um, at the moment, we're just we've we've been through. We've had some cattle in the past. Um, we've just got a handful of those guys left. We were up to three hundred sheep at one point. I got rid of those. They just want to die for a pastime. But we have um, what I call guest sheep. We have other people put their sheep on our on our grass, and we make hay and haylage in smaller bales for the equestrian community. And living in Dorset, was that part of being close to doing the Doc Martin series in Cornwall? No, we already had a place down here. We just, we just ages ago, just sort of fell in love with the county and then had a, a fun time, a fun sort of two years looking for a house to buy. And then just after we married, about 25 years ago, I guess, we bought our first house down here. And that was, we'd just sort of have weekends. And then when Emily was born, and uh, it became time for her to go to school. We sort of realized that if we didn't move down here, lock, stock and barrel, we'd never get down here because if her school was in London and her friends would be, you know, and you know what it's like when you have children, when you, you graduate from being a waiter to a chauffeur, don't you, at some point. So we just, uh, we we moved everything down here and have never looked back. And she had a lovely, um, you know, lovely country schooling. And now she's, she's a novice event rider and she's got a big competition coming up this weekend. But yeah, so she's pretty animal based too. Doc Martin, the final series, I think it was supposed to come out. We were supposed to be watching it now, but presumably right, COVID yeah. played, played, uh, yeah. havoc with that. Yeah, it would have been impossible in that little village to, to film with the, the COVID restrictions as they were last year. But we're all, um, we're girding our loins for next year. Are you about to shoot that final series of tenths? We'll shoot that next year, from the spring through to the summer, and then it'll yeah it'll be out this time next year. So we have the editors in porter cabins down on a farmyard. It's all it's quite uh, rustic. Our outfit down in Cornwall, all, all our 
principal interior sets are built in a grain um, barn, and that's our sort of um, studio. And uh, on the same farmyard in a holiday cottage, that's where our office is. And then in in the farmyard itself, there's porter cabins where they edit and we store the costumes and props and things. Well, there are many South Africans who are going to go to Port Isaac as a as a result of that. And and you're very recognisable in the UK with the success of Doc Martin and I'm sure now with uh, with Manhunt. Has it changed your life much? That, no, I I think I've been around long enough that I'm 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 never a novelty. <laughs> People don't get excited. It's him again. Um, uh, certainly around here, but um, you know, my, no, my I I. I well, we're, we're pretty isolated where we live here, so it doesn't really, you know, there's no knocking on my door. But uh, uh, no, I live what I consider to be a normal life. And when you travel? When I travel, um, yeah, well, yeah, people say hello. You know, they're generally friendly so far. <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> you turn 60. Next, next month. In acting, does that mean that you, you move to the next phase? Uh, I remember... Um, reading once that uh, 20 to 40 was supposed to be learning, 40 to 60 was supposed to be earning, and 60 onwards was supposed to be serving? Well, I don't know. I'll just carry on. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to – well, I mean, I'm, uh, can't, I can't stop it, can I? Um, it's going to come, but I'm slightly begrudging it. Have you got any other ideas into the future, or was Philippa, your wife, Philippa Braithwaite, working on, on that for you? Um, well, first, I was doing a thing about the islands of the Pacific uh, when COVID struck, and we only got three of the four films we were going to make that are going to air here, I think, in the new year now. But um, we were waiting to see if the world would open up and we could make the fourth film, um, uh, but it didn't and we couldn't. I mean, you know, a lot of the Pacific islands are um, are still closed. Tonga is, I think, and Fiji. But um we hope to get there at the end when we finish Doc Martin. I'll get out there and we're going to not just do the fourth film, but we're going to make another three using that as the first one of sort of the Islands of the Pacific Part 2, which I'm looking forward to. And then we're making another drama about uh, drug dealing in Wales. So, again, not a, not a comedy. Yeah, it's been very tough on, on your industry, uh, COVID. Um. In some ways, but in other ways, with the, you know, uh, uh, Amazon and Netflix did really well out of COVID. They're upping their production in England by another 25%, I think. And I guess Amazon will do the same. So those, you know, there's, there's more being made than ever before. It's really hard to get hold of a crew. That's interesting. And does it also mean that your potential employers have changed from ITV and and the BBC to Amazon Netflix? I don't know. I'm still very fortunate in that we have a great working relationship with ITV. Um, So while it's still there, you know, plus, as you say, I'm 60 next month, you know, there was young fresh meat on Netflix and Amazon, I think. (laughs) Not the old guard. And Hollywood, has it ever beckoned? I, I'm not. I don't live there, so I do. I, uh, I've had a couple of sort of inquiries, but they all want you to, um, you know, relocate, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> this interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us? hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Joshua Roberts of Business, and with me for today's Market Insights is Sassfin Securities' David Shapiro. MediClinic came out with an upbeat trading statement on Friday. Seems like there's pent-up demand since COVID cases have declined sharply. Do you expect the strong demand to persist after COVID finally tails off? Oh, yeah. Oh, and how? I think it's the elective surgery that is uh, coming back. And they had very good numbers out of Switzerland and also out of the Middle East. And I think that's where it's starting to happen. But 
Justin, I would imagine it's going to happen here. You can delay up to a point, but eventually you're going to have to address uh, those issues. And, you know, with doctor friends, I think delaying what are, uh, you know, general kind of uh, um, appointments and tests and that, you know, one does on a regular basis, you know, in other words, regular checkups, I think eventually causes more problems. So um, I, th I think people will start coming back. And you can almost feel confidence uh, starting to rise here. People are, I know they're not dropping their guard, but I think those kind of things are going to uh, uh, certainly, you know, be seen. So let's see, let's see with Netcare. They'll be a test because they're the ones without anything overseas. They've given up their offshore operations. So we'll see what, what they have to say about it. And, you know, reports are that there's uh, very few cases, you know, very few COVID cases uh, in, in, in the major hospitals at the moment. So the pressure's off. So let's see. But I think there will definitely. And hopefully it translates into hospitality as well. Hopefully you start to see the hotels full and, uh, um, you know, just uh, conferences taking place as well. Just spoken to a chap who's, who's just come back from the game reserve. And I don't know whether you know in, Sk in Skakuza, there's this new hotel. It's like, it's not even, you know, it's not the thatched roof um, bungalows that you have. This is a proper decent hotel. And he says it was packed with conference, you know, people there for a conference. So, um, yeah, so hopefully we're starting to see that happening again. On to hospitality, David. Business travel has been debated for a while now. Is it returning or industries affected going to be permanent losers due to the fundamental shift in the way that business and work is done these days? Now, we'll be a bit slow, but it's going to come back. I mean, we like people. You know? <laughs> we like to go to conferences. Justin, you know why? Because conferences are one thing. We don't go to listen to the talks. We go there to see people afterwards. And then when you do listen to a talk, you need to go, you need to talk about the talk so that, you know, you might have certain views. You want to discuss us. Am I right? Did I interpret it correctly? What was he saying? What was she saying? And so on. So I think that given time when uh, business travel will return, uh, yeah, there'll be a hybrid model, but I wouldn't write it off. You know, we're, I'm not at all. And I think we enjoy it. We love being with people. We love sitting there on the stoop, you know, after they're having a beer, whatever it is with mates and just talking about things. So don't write it off. And as a result, you wouldn't write investment propositions such as City Lodge? No, no, no. I think it's going to take time. You know, tourists are coming. As soon as we heard that, uh, uh, you know, Australia is opening up, I, well, it's, it, 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 it's a bit in the air at the moment. I think they can come here. We can't go there. But you'll see once Qantas opens flights, you'll see packed. And uh, so I think, I, I, I think, I still think that you down in Cape Town, you're going to have a season there. But you're going to have to keep the volleys off the road, you know. <laughs> you're going to go back to nursing. You know, those volleys are here in full force. But that's going to be great. And particularly for those people who are making sandwiches, you know, or, or, or pouring coffee. And um, I, I think good luck to them. They deserve a little bit of a break. And I hope they get it. I was doing some research and subsequently published an article on your Hun Rupert's three listed vehicles, Remgrow, Richmond, and Raynet. Which would be your chosen investment and why? Only Richmond. <laughs> I think... You know what? To be fair, I think uh, I'm not mad about Rainet. I don't know enough about it. You know, the British American tobacco side of it. I know that's coming down quite a bit. I like Richmond, and I think luxury is coming back. And they're also reshaping the model. You know, uh, they're bringing in Farfetch, which is a luxury online. Uh, you know, an online luxury site. But I'm very interested in Remgrow, and I think. They can do more there. There's some good underlying operations. You know, I've been cynical about the whole thing because it was always swamped by MediClinic and it was swamped by uh, the first RAM group. And now that they've got rid of those and they've got, I think, RCL and MediClinic of two, I think I would love to see them release some of the other stuff as well. Uh, the Wispy, you know, Wispico and some of the other operating, they've got Total Energies and some things like that. So, you know, I know it's a bit, uh, a bit arrogant of me or for me to start dictating how you should be running these companies. But the more I look into it, the more I think with a bit of work, they can, they can actually release value and put that out 
and give it a little, you know, kind of boost that we used to see back in the old days when Anton Rupert was there. China's been a recurring theme over the last few weeks. Their third quarter GDP growth missed expectations. Lots of negative sentiment coming out. Is GDP growth stalling signposts that there's more ominous news to come? Well, that's, that's interesting. I, I think they'll overcome it. I think they had the perfect storm. Everything hit them at the same time. And the power crisis is a worry. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a big worry for them because uh, I don't think anybody expected and the fact that they're actually um, restricting or confining um, um, you know, energy to some of the factories, I think, is, is, is a little bit of an issue. But um, hopefully that will subside. But, but, you know, markets, I see European markets are a little down on those numbers, but um, they don't like to be embarrassed. I don't think they like to uh, be shown up. And the last thing they want is for people to feel sorry for them. So I think they'll, they'll, they'll overcome it. But listen, the numbers, I think we're in line with expectations, but they're not the kind of numbers that we see from China. The, the one thing that was positive is that retail sales are still up, you know, and um, I, I, I didn't give it a chance. I'm not, I've, I've toned down my views on China, but I haven't written them off completely. Mm. Emerging Energy Group Renogen has inked a 360 million rand forward sales agreement that forms part of broader plans to allow investors to trade in helium, intending to help bring price transparency to what is currently a very opaque market. What's your take on this? I think it's interesting. I've seen that they're using blockchain, and uh, because there is no market in helium, you know, I, I, well, there's no formal market. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how this takes off and whether or not you can buy. I don't know what they call these tokens, which give you access to it. So very, very interesting. I, you know, blockchain. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm indifferent to Bitcoin. I just, it just doesn't fit in with my thinking. I'm not. I'm neither positive nor negative. I just don't understand where it's at. But where it comes to blockchain, that's different. You know, and we've got to start looking at the possibilities of that. So from that, I, you know, I'm very interested to see how markets like this develop. You know, I'm not going to buy one of these non-fungible tokens of, of Mickey Mouse or someone playing hockey or something. You know, I'm not into that kind of market. But where it gives you access to, uh, you know, gives you a right to do something, that's something, you know, that's different. That's, that's a different, so it'd be very interesting to see if they can develop it from here. Um, and there are possibilities of going into, into markets as well, you know, options and rights and various other things. So yeah, keep your mind open to that. But I mean, don't get me on Bitcoin. Not that I just, I, I just, I have no idea. I'm, I, I'm in the, I just don't understand Ken. <laughs> and your stance on junior miners as a whole, such as Renogen, is it too speculative, too risky? Or is it something that you look at? No, the whole country was built on junior mining, you know, and, and good luck. Uh, one's got to give them the opportunity to see. And, and South Africa has an abundance of minerals, metals, and I didn't know helium gas, you know. So that, that's how we, you know, that's, that's why the stock exchange was so important. That's why I'm, I'm, I push, uh, you know, to, to, to develop that kind of market because, that's the best capital that you can raise for new ventures is equity capital. You're not bound to a bank. You don't lose your mother and sister and children. You know, <laughs> you don't have to put them up as collateral. So I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, from the time that the first ships sailed out of Amsterdam, you know, to the middle to to the East Indies, which was, uh, uh, you know, to to the, to the east. I think I've always been a supporter of um, joint venture companies or what they call joint, I don't know what they were called in the initial days, but very, very important. I, I, you know, I like that sector, and I do hope that they can raise money and continue to raise money in that segment of the market. Lastly, David, your tweets about possible insider trading at Tuleman. I guess coincidence like that just don't happen. A 40% rally in the share price before the release of a cautionary announcement. Just from a broader perspective, is insider trading on the JSE or just general global markets, is it a big problem? Yeah, of course it is. We talk too much and we leak too much, you know, and we don't stamp it down. Um, it should be monitored. I, I just see incidences like this all the time because that's what I do on a daily basis. I say, what's gone up today? What's gone down? You know, and you can see where suddenly patterns are emerging. You say, 
and, and, and I said, what's the story? And I keep looking for the story and I can't find the story. Then, you know, something's happening, particularly in the human story. You know, I, I kept looking. Why should they be, is it the aluminium price? No, you know, they buyers and sellers. Yes, they might have a little bit of stock. So I was trying to rationalize it in my mind. So I don't know what the real story is, but the stock exchange has to clamp down on it. You know, you've got to make people sweat and itch if they've been doing it, you know, and say, listen, we're on to you. Welcome to the Power Pals podcast series brought to you by Standard Bank. Well, we're on episode five now of our series looking at uh, the very exciting Power Pulse platform. And today, Dirosh Maharaj, who's Senior Manager for Natural Resources on the Power and Sustainable Solutions side of commercial banking at Standard Bank, and Kevin Semwa-Guerrere, who's Corporate Venturing Lead for the Power Pulse platform. Before we go into the conversation today, how's it been going so far, Dirosh? Maybe as the champion, uh, have you found that the effort that you've put in is being rewarded? So we're definitely starting to see um, signs of that coming through. Uh, we had our first client confirm, you know, the an, an order very recently. And, uh, you know, along the way, coming up to this point, you know, the appreciation and the feedback from clients have been very encouraging. So where we're sitting now, we're feeling more and more confident as the days pass that, you know, we we're on the right track in terms of what our intention is, which is to uplift the industry and deliver value. And Kevin, have you been involved in anything like this before in this kind of a startup? Because having done it personally, it's there's nothing more exciting than when an idea actually gets implemented. So yes, Alec, um, as part of my role, which is corporate venturing, uh, that is my full-time uh, occupation. So before this particular venture, I was part of a previous venture. But, you know, in the corporate venturing environment, we are startups with performance indicators at the end of the day. So it's always a challenge, you know, uh, despite the exciting experience uh, to meet, I think, the mothership expectations in terms of return on investment, because it's a real business at the end of the day that has been sponsored. So I have done this before and I definitely have the best hopes for Pulse, which seems to be doing quite well. Well, in the previous episode, uh, I spoke with Derosh and Ricky Hazer about the practicalities of implementing a solar solution. In this episode, we're going to have a look at common pitfalls that hopefully PowerPulse are going to help you to avoid when you go down the road of investing in solar PV projects. Kevin, perhaps before we get into the benefits of having the right partners, let's just look at the or recap rather on the benefits of what alternative energy sources offer to people who are operating in a commercial environment. Maybe just a, a quick recap for us. Thanks, Alex. So as you know, we've covered in previous episodes, uh, Paul Paulson has been established to meet the challenge that is in our country's power sector at the moment around stable electricity supply and also around, I think, more pre- predictability around the cost of electricity. So alternative energy sources such as solar um, is definitely one of those answers as a technology option. And um, at the end of the day, what we're trying to promote here is an environment where businesses are able to source reliable power at predictable costs, which therefore impacts the bottom line, their P&L. So as the Power Pulse offering from Standard Bank, we're trying to bring together the fragmented aspects of the power industry, given the challenges that we currently observe out there, by bringing them, you know, in connection to trusted solution providers or solar installers, but at the same time, giving them much more knowledge, education and intelligence around what it means to implement alternative energy means such as solar. So we've developed quite a robust process around that, which I think gives businesses in the commercial and industrial space more confidence around exploring alternative energy means. And and hence, we're starting to see quite an uptake in the solution so far. That's an interesting point in that recently government allowed providers to go up to 100 megawatt plants without getting a license. So I guess there are going to be quite a few people who are going to just go into that business, build 100 megawatt plants to on-sell electricity to others. What's the advantage or what's the benefit for a company of investing in its own plant rather than buying from one of those probable third-party suppliers? 
So I think um, it's it's not a straightforward answer in terms of what are the advantages of one option versus the other in terms of producing your own power or sourcing it from, you know, another producer of power who unsells it onto you. And hence why, you know, there's the phenomenon of IPPs, independent power producers, but also they are purchasing power agreements, which can give you that variability in terms of the options that you can explore. So there are various nuances uh, depending on the option that best suits you. Um, but I think what, you know, one would assume um, in the instance where you're producing your own power is that you have more control over the narrative around the reliability of the power that you rely on. And also you have more pr- predictability in terms of the costs. And where you have, I think, sort of an on-sale of electricity to you, depending on how they produce it, yes, you could have, I think, legal operating agreements, uh, service level agreements to ensure in terms of that PPA structure that they meet your needs. However, at the end of the day, you sort of defer that level of predictability in terms of reliability of electricity and also predictability of cost because you are, in essence, outsourcing uh, that production capacity. So I think having more control and predictability is probably one of the underlying um, benefits or advantages of producing your own power, uh, given this new regulation of the 100 megawatt threshold that has been announced, as opposed to distributing that capacity onto a third party. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I suppose on top of that, you'd have another layer of costs, obviously, because those producing the 100 megawatts need to get their returns as well. But Dirosh, we've spoken a lot in this series about the financial benefits of solar power, but what are the risks? And that's really the focus of of this episode, i.e. under what circumstances you go through PowerPulse, you find the right supplier, you get Standard Bank to fund the project, but actually you don't achieve the benefits that you were hoping for. What could go wrong, in other words? That's a very good question. Thanks. You know, if I were to look at three main areas that need to be considered, it would firstly be, you know, the system design and the implementation, right? And that's where things could, at the outset, become challenging. So if you're not dealing with a credible operator, you'll generally find that, you know, there's a good chance that the equipment that's being recommended does not meet the correct standards. So if you are basing your decision on, you know, underlying cash flows and savings that that you envisage would materialize, firstly, if the equipment's not at the relevant level of quality, being tier one panels and, you know, uh, tier A inverters and so forth, you're going to have challenges. The second part is the implementation of the system. So when when it comes to, well, well, in that first category of design and implementation, the implementation of the system is absolutely important because there's no sense having quality equipment that hasn't been deployed or implemented correctly because once again, you're not going to get the, the maximum benefit from that system. And there's a good chance that that system may not be allowed to be switched on. And I'll touch on that in the third category. So a second component is, uh, or a second category, main category is around the operation and maintenance. So remember, these are long-term assets. You know, when you when you install a solar PV system, provided that it's of the appropriate quality, you're really taking a 20 to 25 year view, you know, in terms of its useful life and the benefit you're going to derive from it. Because that's how long, you know, the performance guarantees linked to these systems, you know, run for. So the first year is generally pretty simple and these systems have they, they're quite robust, they're quite resilient when designed and implemented correctly. But in year or two or three, something could go wrong. And if you don't have an operation and maintenance backup, you could be sitting with downtime of a week and that could obviously eat into the envisaged savings that you initially hope to achieve. So that's an important component. So having uh, once you've implemented the system, having an operation maintenance uh, service provider to support you in that is very important and generally very cost effective. And generally, it's quite well absorbed within the savings model that solar PV, you know, provides. PowerPulse by Standard Bank is an end-to-end online solution built to match businesses with trusted suppliers and deliver the right technical, legal, and funding solutions. For more details, email us at powerpulse at standardbank.co.za. Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, We will be back again tomorrow, the 19th of October, with the Biz News Power Hour. Just to remind you that if this is the first time that you've picked us up or indeed you've missed some shows that you would like to tap into, you can do that 
by going onto Google or uh, Spotify or iTunes and looking for Biz News Radio or indeed the Biz News Power Hour, and you'll find the full recording there as well. If you happen to be outside of your favorite radio station that you might be listening to this on right now, or you'd like to perhaps tune in live, you can do that by going on to biznewsradio.com at 5.30 in the afternoon. We've got the live show repeated again at 7 and 7, 7 p.m. in the evening and 7 a.m. in the morning. So lots of ways of picking up uh, what we hope is your favorite news, business news fix at least, uh, on a daily basis. To remind you, we are on air from Monday to Thursday, so Monday to Thursday evenings. On a Friday evening, we hand over to our colleague Carrie Adams, who brings uh, Carrie's Corner which is a focus on the wine industry primarily anyway. Uh, But until we get back with you tomorrow from the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.